believe God saved us to worship and serve Him and to sing. We were saved to sing. In fact, the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So thank you, Benjamin, and all of the gifted people that lead us to sing praise the Lord. We're going to do it in heaven, and we're going to do it here on earth. I want to encourage you to come out on the 23rd if you weren't here for the last worship night. It's, it's just a joy to just sing and praise the Lord. And the Lord uses the words of music to comfort us, encourage us, instruct us. And so be praying for that, and hopefully you and your family will come out. It was a, a good turnout, and I think that the Lord is pleased when we worship Him. We have that privilege. Well, if you have your Bible, and I'd like to invite you to turn to John 3. If you don't have a Bible, you're visiting with us, or you forgot your Bible, our ushers have extras. We're reading through the Gospel of John together, and I'm hoping that you're reading it and learning and meditating and asking questions, and also that you're reading it with someone else, reading it with your children or reading it with someone from work, just asking people, hey, would you like to read through John together? So as we go through this, I just take some notes so that you can guide them. You don't need to be a pastor to teach people the Bible, to encourage and disciple one another. So we're in John chapter 3, and I want to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the new birth. Thank you that you loved us and sent Jesus so that we could have salvation, be forgiven, have a great assurance of our future, have the promises of God in Christ, which are yes, amen. They give us great joy and hope. Thank you for forgiving us, Lord. We don't deserve your grace. And we just want to worship you, God, that you you didn't leave us to perish, and that particularly those of us who believe, we know it's all by your grace. And we praise you for bringing us into the body of Christ, that you gave us one another as gifts to help us on our journey and to build each other up and pray for us. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will be forever with you, Jesus. But as we wait, help us as we sang to walk close with you. Help us to walk in the light, admitting our sins, embracing your forgiveness, walking in the Spirit's power. And we pray together for our church that the Spirit of God will work mightily to reach our community and to build us up and keep us in unity and love and power. We pray for our nation as we anticipate the election and the direction of the future of this nation. These are perilous times, Father, and we pray for you to put in office the candidate who will most turn us toward the things that matter to you, like life. Father, we pray that Christians will not be persecuted. We pray for those who are being persecuted in China and the Muslim world and North Korea and all over the world where Christianity is being severely, severely persecuted. Lord, we pray for the, the churches in, in the world that you will comfort, encourage, and strengthen believers who are in prison and help them as Revelation says, to love not their lives unto death, to overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And Father, we pray for the churches in America that you will revive and awaken us, that we would be godly and different and spirit-filled, and that we will be making a difference in our community and growing in holiness, and that our families will be Christ-centered and grace-centered and gospel-centered. So Lord, now we ask that you will bless your word and 
do the work that only the Holy Spirit could do to feed your flock and also to save the lost. And we look forward to what you'll teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're in John chapter 3, one of the most famous chapters of the Bible where Jesus discusses the new birth, the need to be born again. It's a great chapter, and it's in the early part of John, as we said, where Jesus is being warmly received. And so the first thing that we're going to learn this morning is about the necessity of the new birth. Jesus is going to teach Nicodemus about salvation, but it's important when you tell people you need to be born again that they understand why, okay? So let's look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, Pharisees were one of the two religious leading sects, Pharisees and Sadducees. But to be a ruler of the Jews meant that he was, in addition, part of the Sanhedrin, which was the 70 Jewish rulers that oversaw the affairs of Israel under Rome. So he was a high-ranking official, but also a very, very religious man. Many of the Pharisees had the entire Old Testament memorized, and he had distinguished himself as a teacher. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So he certainly was very, very familiar with spiritual things. Now, notice in the end of chapter 2, the Bible says Jesus knew what was in man. And we're going to see this because when Nicodemus arrives and talks to Jesus, what he says to Jesus and what Jesus says to him shows Jesus' unique ability to read our hearts and minds and say, hey, let's just get right to the point. Let's cut the small talk. I know why you're here, and let me give you your answer. So let's look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. And here's why. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. I want to take a moment before we talk about that just to note that he came by night. Now, John makes a big deal three times when he mentions Nicodemus in the book. He mentions the night. And I, I think the point is we're going to see a progression of, of Nicodemus. He's at entry-level interest. And when you're at entry-level interest in Jesus, one of the first things you often worry about is what will other people think? What will my family think? What will my coworkers or my friends think if I start showing my interest in Jesus? So often people are very covert. They, they don't want anybody to know. Now, what we see, the progress of Nicodemus's faith, later in the book, he's going he's to challenge the Sanhedrin, like, hey, give the guy a chance. And then by the end of the book, he's going to be willing to risk his life. The Bible says he's going to go to Pilate, and he's going to ask for the body of Jesus. But maybe you're there, you're still interested in spiritual things, but you're worried about what other people think. Can I encourage you to get rid of that and go to the next level? Because when you die, you're not going to stand before your parents. You're not going to stand before your siblings. You're going to stand before the Lord Jesus. And it really doesn't matter what people think. What matters is what God thinks. And so Jesus, you'll note, Nicodemus is like, hey, man, you're raising the dead. I, I learned this when I'm reading my Old Testament. God worked through Moses miraculously in such powerful ways that obviously you, he was with Moses. And then Elijah did these great miracles. He was with Elijah. And now you're doing miracles, so he must be with you. And while that's true, that's insufficient to save. And Jesus knew what he was really asking is, hey, you know something I don't know. I've got some things I do know. I know you're from God. So here's my question. Am I going to be in the kingdom of God? It's a great question. He's not the only one in the Gospels. I imagine Jesus got that question often. One guy came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Nicodemus was more, I think, 
searching to know, have I done enough? Am I in? Surely with my religious perspective, certainly I'm in. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus says truly, truly, this is worth noting, he's not suggesting that other things that he says are less than true. This is just a figure of speech for what I'm about to say is really important. So make a note of this. Nicodemus, you're mixed up here because what you're thinking is salvation comes by religion and reformation. And what I'm telling you is that it comes by regeneration. So what Nicodemus is thinking is, surely I'm in. And Jesus is going, no, you're, 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 you're not even, you're not even going to set a foot into the kingdom unless you have a radical transformation. Now, what does he mean by that? He goes, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Obviously, we know Nicodemus is like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, you should. The teacher of Israel. So this isn't something that the Old Testament didn't teach. But I think this is a good time for us to remember that most of our friends, most of the people you know, if they believe in God, they have this idea that you get to heaven by being good. Most people have a consciousness that they're not perfect, and so they're, they're building up their good works. I think I'm good enough. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you were taught by your church. Just be good. Just try. Remember years ago, I had a fan on my roof. It was a ventilation fan, and it, and it was silver color, but it started to rust, and it looked hideous. And so I went out, and I sanded it down, and then I painted it with Rust-Oleum spray. And it looked good for a few years until that cancerous rust came back. And in the same way, that's what religion is like. It's spraying over the rust. We can reform ourselves, but that's not what's going to get us to heaven. We need to be regenerated. We need to be born anew. We need to be totally transformed from the inside. Now, Nicodemus takes him literally. How can he be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. So Jesus is going to go, all right, I've told you the necessity to be born again. It's because we're sinners. It's because we're corrupt. It's because left to ourselves, nothing we could do to reform ourselves will get us in. But now let me explain the nature. So Jesus talks about the nature of the new birth. He says, let me, let me elaborate a little bit. Verse 5, he says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So last time he said born again. Now he says water and the spirit. And you're going, what does that mean? And a lot of commentators and theologians have come up with a, a lot of possibilities. One of them is that Jesus is talking about baptism here. Because of the, the frequent references to water baptism. I'm pretty comfortable going, that's very unlikely. Because the Bible doesn't teach that you... You do anything to get saved. You, you don't add any works to it. And baptism, no matter how you, you look at it, is still a, a work. So I don't think he's talking about baptism here. Secondly, some have said he's just talking about physical birth. You have to be born of the flesh, like he says later. So the amniotic sac, you know, you have to be born physically and you have to be born spiritually. And while that's a possibility, and I'm going to explain why I don't believe that, it's a little bit redundant because if you're not born physically, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. So, I'm going to suggest, based on the fact that Jesus says, you should know what we're talking about here, that Jesus knew that Nicodemus would be familiar with an Old Testament passage. And I want you to turn to Ezekiel 36. 
if you're familiar with the Bible. If you're not, don't worry about it. Just write it down for now, because by the time I read it, you're going to still be finding it, and then we'll be back in John. So just stay in John. But if you're familiar with the Bible and you can find Ezekiel 36 fairly quickly, one of the things that the Old Testament continually said is, you need to have your heart changed. When God gave the law through Moses, he said, circumcise your heart. The Bible's very clear that there has to be an inward transformation. That's not something that was new. And so when, when the, the prophets predicted the new covenant that Jesus would bring, they would talk about that. And there's a passage in Ezekiel 36 where Ezekiel talks about water and the Spirit. And I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he says to Nick, you should know this. You should know you need to be born of water and the Spirit. So what does water represent here? Well, look in Ezekiel 36, verse 25. As God predicts this great work he'll do in the future, he said, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So obviously here, he's not being literal. You're not going to go, oh, to have a relationship with God, water comes down from heaven and washes away. It's a metaphor. To be sprinkled is to be forgiven. It's to be cleansed from your sin. And that's what it means to be born again. You have to be washed from your sins. That's the first part. So Jesus says, the, the nature of the new birth is you have to be washed. You have to be forgiven. But then he says you have to be born of water and the Spirit. Now here we're going to see that that means God's going to change your nature. Fundamentally, he's going to go, you need a new hard drive. You don't need a tune-up. You need a new engine. You need a lobotomy. So notice verse 27 or 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now look at verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you. I want you to think about that. To be born again means to have all of your sins forgiven. And then God change your heart and then place his Holy Spirit inside of us. That's radical. That's regeneration. That's not reformation. Okay? Now, when God does that, when he changes your heart, and sometimes it's very subtle. If you're a little kid when you're born again, it's not like you're like, whoa, man, I'm going to stop killing my friends. It can be very subtle. However, it's always the same thing. What happens is your disposition changes. You ready for this? And all of a sudden, you now have this new inkling and interest and desire to obey and follow God. I want you to think over your experiences, right? So notice what it says. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. See, part of the working of regeneration, when, when, when God changes a man's heart, a woman's heart, a child's heart, is the Bible teaches that apart from that regeneration, we're hostile to God. We're away from God. We're not able or willing to fully surrender to God. But when he gives us this new heart and the spirit of God within us, suddenly there's a change. And I begin to be drawn towards God. And I begin to see, now you ready for this? I begin to see evidences of this changed heart. And so you should be doing your own biography here going, autobiography, have I ever experienced that? So let's go back to chapter 3 and see what Jesus says. He says, Nick, you need to be born of water and the spirit. You need to be forgiven. You need to have this radical transformation of your heart that turns you to the Lord. 
But then he goes on to say, now, Nick, I know this is, this is hard for you to understand. But he says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And by the way, I want to just point out something interesting about the word again. This Greek word can mean from above. It could be translated again. It could be translated from above. Okay? And depending on the context, it could mean either one. It's quite likely that John uses it or Jesus used it intentionally because it's both, right? You're not only born again, but you're born from above, meaning God's the one who does it. But Jesus speaks of the mystery of the new birth, okay? There there really is something very strange to, to, to go, wow, to think that God incredibly radically changes people. Now, some people feel it like, like, John Wesley, as he listened to uh, somebody commenting on the book of Romans, he said, my heart was strangely warmed. Don't worry about that. Don't go, my heart wasn't strangely warmed, because there's a mystery to it. So Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 8, he says, let's talk about the wind as an illustration. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So the idea here is the movements and motions of the wind are very mysterious. In fact, I really can't tell if it's windy. If I can't see trees or see something that the wind blows on, I don't know if it's windy. If I look up at a clear blue sky, the wind is mysterious. It's invisible. However, I can tell when it's windy because Jesus says you can hear the sound of it. And I can always tell when it's windy because whenever I'm fly fishing, about the time I want to cast at that big trout, it's always in my face. Or whenever I'm raking leaves, if I want to pull the leaves this way in my yard, the wind blows that way in the yard. So... But at the same way, when a person's born again, you can't see that. It's like wind. But what you can see are the effects of it. So let's start with an illustration from physical birth. When a child is born, the obstetrician is not really concerned whether the child has blue eyes or brown eyes, which they pretty much all have the same color at first. Neither is he concerned whether the children has Nine or ten fingers, well, that will be important later. There's one and only one primary thing. Is the child alive? Because just because a child is born does not mean it's alive. And so normally, ideally, that child comes out screaming, right? Hallelujah. It's a boy or it's a girl. But sometimes children come out absolutely silent, sometimes blue and motionless. And the only thing they're trying to do is make sure that child's alive. And so years ago, they would... They would um, smack its bottom, hold upside down, smack its bottom. Now, apparently that became um, something that could get them in trouble. So now they flick them on the foot, right? And you're going, why are you doing that? Because I remember them doing this with my son. And then they suctioned his mouth because he was making no noise. But once he he began to move and, and cry, then like, ah. Well, let me suggest that there's a similarity there to the new birth. Because two things. One, let's start with this. You may know someone who's absolutely disinterested in spiritual things. They could care less about God, right? But you never know when the Holy Spirit's wind is blowing on their heart and how suddenly they can have a complete change in their disposition towards God in spiritual things. That's one of the reasons why Jesus sent the Spirit. He said he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But secondly, and more importantly, is we frequently get a little too excited when people profess to be come Christians, particularly children. That's something to celebrate, but when they're four years old and they go, yes, I was saved, 
one of the things I want to encourage you to do is celebrate that, but look for and begin to observe and see if there are evidences of the new birth. And you probably should be thinking, as you always should be thinking, where'd you get that from the Bible? So what I want to suggest is that at your leisure that you read through the book of First John. Because at the end of First John, he says, these things were written so that you could know that you have eternal life. And First John talks a lot about being born again. And he gives a number of evidences to look for. He says, first of all, everyone who has been born of God confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So the first thing that we ought to see in a born-again person is a willingness to say, yes, I do believe it. They make a credible profession. Yes, I do believe that Christ is my Lord and Savior. I believe he died and rose for me. I'm trusting him. But it doesn't stop there. Then John says this, everyone who has been born from God loves the brethren. So one of the things that's, a, that's an evidence of being born again is an interest in other born-again people. Now, it doesn't mean that you're like, man, every Christian I meet, I love them like my best friend. But there's just this affinity of heart that says, I connect with Christians. I want to be with Christians. I understand Christians. I don't think they're a bunch of weird nuts and I want to get away from them. That's another mark of being born again. A third mark, and this is really important, perhaps the most profound, is a person's disposition towards sin. If, if born-again people receive a new nature and a new heart that's, that's inclined towards God, then that means if they continue to disobey God, they should have a real disconnect there, a real distress in their soul about sin. In other words, if you're born again and you sin regularly, boldly, blatantly, you, you commit sexual sins, you lie, you, you cheat, you're, you're, you just do your thing, that's frightening. Because 1 John 3, 9 says, no one who has been born from God, now listen carefully, no one who has been born from God will continually practice a life of sin. And then it says this, he cannot, because God's seed abides in him. So one of the things that we ought to look for, and this is something that you need to kind of probe with people, is don't just go, oh, he's not born again because he's still living with his girlfriend. But, but to probe more deeply and go, what's going on inside of you as you sin? Just like a doctor asking diagnostic questions. So if a person says something like this, yeah, well, I've been doing that ever since I was born again. This is a literal story. I had a guy sinning boldly sexually. He goes, I've been doing that for 20 years since I was born again. And it's never been an issue and it's none of your business. Right? Now, that same person, if he had said, you know what? 20 years ago, I was born again. And ever since I was born again, I've struggled with this. I know it's wrong. Yeah, I, I stumble, but I endure it. See the difference? Godless pagans enjoy sinning. And there's a pleasure in sin, but Christians endure it. We struggle against it. And that's one of the marks of the work of God in your life, is that God gives you a sensitivity towards pleasing Him. I don't wake up in the morning and go, I want to be with the Lord and pray because I'm virtuous. I wake up and I want to be with Christ because I'm born again, and He has changed my heart. He is working in me to will and work for His good pleasure. He is drawing me to Himself. Do you, do, you, do you follow me? You're like, yeah, th that, that explains me. That's my journey too. It's not that I'm anything good or great. It's God working in me because he's made me alive. 
So I want to be very careful here because as a pastor over the years, I've, I've understood and, and want to be careful that there are people who are born again who struggle with assurance. It's just a fact. So if you are born again, but, but, but you're not sure, that doesn't mean you're not born again. Okay? In fact, in the book of 2 Peter, he says, now that you have a, a like precious faith, add to your faith moral excellence and self-control and godliness and perseverance and Christian love. But then he says this, because if you lack these things, you might be blind or short-sighted having forgotten your purification. So please, some of you can, can become morbid and go, oh, I think bad thoughts, and I still sometimes say an angry word. I must not be born again. That does not mean you're not born again. The fact that you're distressed about sinning, that's a good sign. That's an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And rather than looking inside your heart and going, do I have enough evidence of goodness? Look away to Christ. Look to the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. He took away your sins. But if, if you go, I can't stand Christians. I really like sinning. I don't get these people. I'm not interested in the Bible. Then I would encourage you to go, maybe you should do a reassessment and go, am I really born again? Have I really laid myself out to Christ and received him? All right? So, having looked at the nature and the necessity, the next thing Jesus is going to explain here is the provision for us to be born again. It's not as simple as God just saying, gosh, you people are broke. Come on in here and I'll redo you. The problem is that in our brokenness and our unborn again state, we've offended Almighty God deeply. That in our rebellion and hostility and in our natural proclivities to do what we want to do and Burger King our lives our way, we have laid up a great debt that deserves God's wrath. So it's not as though God just goes, all right, listen, let's get a redo, I'll forgive you. The first thing is, is I have to be forgiven, as we noticed, washed, but it's only because God has provided a substitute to pay for my sins. Okay, so this is part of being born again. Somebody had to pay so I could be born again, and that was Jesus. So notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He goes, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak what we know, and we bear witness of what we've seen, and you don't receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So I think what he's doing is he's trying Nicodemus. He goes, Nick, this is entry level. To get right with God, you got to have your heart changed. you got to be forgiven. If you don't get that, how am I going to teach you more deeper heavenly things? But now Jesus turns the quarter and, and, and he does something rather mysterious. He goes, I want to remind you of an Old Testament story. It's the story of Moses in the wilderness. And those of you who know the Bible, you've read this story. When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they started complaining. Which is always a bad idea to complain to God about your circumstances. The Bible says, do everything without complaining. And grumbling. But we do it. We're like, God, why me? So they began complaining to God, and, and God was very patient, but he came to a point of saying, listen, I love you. I'm going to discipline you. So he, he, he infested the wilderness with poisonous snakes, and people were getting bit by these poisonous snakes because of their constant complaining, and they were dying. 
God has a way of saying, listen, I love you, but I'll get your attention. Now, frankly, that would have scared me simple, right? And so they came to Moses, and they're like, Moses, do something. We're all going to die from these snakes here. You don't even want to get in your sleeping bag, proverbially, because there's snakes, right? So God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to take a long pole and forge a brass serpent around that pole, right? And put a snake on there and, and, and write the saying, don't tread on me. No, that's not what it said, right? But remember, the serpent was a cursed, cursed creature, Back in Genesis 3, God cursed the serpent. Cursed are you, right? Lift up this cursed creature. And then, then he said, and anyone who's bit by that snake, let them come and look and live. And so if you get bit by a snake, you don't go, suck the venom out, Larry. You run to the snake and you look and you live and you're healed. So Jesus goes, hey, remember that story, Nick? He says in verse 15, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Remember that cursed serpent that people looked and lived? He said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Lifted up. What do you mean? Lifted up like the cursed serpent on the cross where Christ was cursed on our behalf. Where he bore our sins in his body and he shed his blood as the Lamb of God so that we could be freely forgiven. And what do those people have to do to get cured? They didn't have to say a hundred prayers. They didn't have to crawl through the sand for two hours in the heat. They looked and they live. And that's the gospel of Christ. You look to the Lamb. You believe that Christ died instead of you. Why would he do that? Why would God give his son? Good question. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world. That's why he did it, because he loved, I don't know why, I didn't deserve it. He loves us, he loves you. And he gave his son, and he let Jesus die instead of me, tortured, bleeding, suffering the wrath of God, because he loved you and me. And then he says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but the world would be saved through him. Do you see it? Do you see him hanging there, bleeding for you to save you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's enough? Do you trust in Christ alone? Now, if it stopped right there, I'd be like, well, God sent his son to save the world. God loves the world. Jesus died for the world. The whole world's going to get saved. Let's go to the end zone, get John 3.16 and hold it up. And all 50,000 people right then are going to get saved. But no, we tried that. Well, then let's put it on Tim Tebow's cheeks, Right? They're all going to get saved. No, we've tried that. There's another reason why many people are not coming to Christ, especially in America. It's not because they have not heard the gospel of grace. It's because they don't want to be saved. And the reason they don't want to be saved is because they don't want to change. They don't want to admit they're sinners. They don't want to leave their sins, and they don't want to be exposed for their sins. And that's really sad. Look at verse 18. He who believes in Christ is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is why men deserve to go to hell, God says. That the light, Christ, has come into the world. Now look at this verse. 
Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You know why? Because that's what the flesh does. The flesh is hostile to God. The flesh says, I'm not going to change. I don't have to change. I'm good enough. I'll do it my way. Or I'm not worried about what God says. This is fun. I like this. What's this stuff about dying to self? I don't want to leave my old life. But when God works in your heart and you go, man, I'm headed for hell. Why would I want to stay in my sins? I want to turn to Christ. You see, it's not just going, Jesus, let me just keep on sinning like it's my job. But by the way, can you give me some of that hell insurance you were talking about? It's, it's like, hey, I realize I'm in, I'm in the garbage. I'm in the vomit. I'm in sin. I'm rebellious. But look, there's life. I want to leave this world. Leave the world behind me. I've decided that I want Christ. And when I do that, God forgives me. Have you done that? If you have, here's one of the cool things. Even though you and I, from our perspective, we chose to do that, you're like, I remember the pastor gave an invitation or grandma gave it. What we learn from the scripture is even our willingness and ability to do that, even that was a work of God's grace. The reason I'm two feet above you guys and not six feet under the ground in hell dead because I used to do stupid stuff that should have cost me my life many times and all kinds of foolish things is because God rescued me. And this is what Jesus says about all of us who have been born again. He calls us those who practice the truth. We come to the light. Look at verse 21. Why? That our deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Oh, Pastor Tom, you're so good. You're so nice. You're so... God changed my heart. Anything good that I ever do or that you ever do is because God changed your heart. To him be the glory. To him be the praise. I was dead in my sins. Ephesians says, I was a child of wrath, deserving God's judgment. But even when I was dead, because of his great mercy, the Bible says, even when I was dead, God made me alive. Thank you, Jesus. Why me? Why not my my sister. Why, why me? Because he loves you and he chose you. And those of us who have been saved were like, hey, any good that's coming out of me is because God changed me. To God be the glory. Now, John's going to end this chapter and we'll briefly look at it and then we'll wind it down. He's going to go back to John the Baptist. John the Evangelist says, let me just tell you one more incident than John the Baptist. So he says, I've talked to you about the new birth. Now, I want you to learn about elevating Jesus in your own life. See, Jesus was elevated on the cross so that we could be born again. But once you're born again, then you and I get the privilege of elevating Jesus in our life. He takes higher priority. We take lower priority. And it's a journey. So let's look at it. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, we're going to learn in chapter 4 that he actually wasn't doing the baptizing. Now notice, but John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim. <clears throat> For there was much water there, and they were coming and being baptized. John wasn't yet thrown in prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So they came to John. They said, John, listen, Rabbi, <clears throat> you know that guy Jesus who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness? 
Behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. They're like, John, I don't know if you know this, but first Baptist of Judea now has second Baptist. And not that it matters, John, but have you been watching the attendance lately? Have you been paying attention to the polls, John? Yeah, you're doing all right, man, and that was a great start. But second Baptist on the other side of the river, there's this new preacher named Jesus. And more people are going to him. What do you think about that, John? Wow. This verse is precious to me because God used it in my life many, many years ago, back in probably 1988, as a new pastor. I was pastoring a church in Texas. We were planning a church, and it had about 150 people. And there was another church about four miles away, another Bible-preaching church. <clears throat> and every time I turned around, I'd hear about how that church was growing. Hey, did you hear about such and such Bible church? They're up to five. They're up to six. They're up to 700 now. They, they just built a new building. They're moving now. They got so many people. Now, if I was mature, I should have gone, praise God. It's awesome. Isn't it a blessing the Holy Spirit's working in all of the churches? But I couldn't help but feeling this nagging question of why. Why is his church growing and I knew the pastor. He's a great guy, godly man, good preacher. But I actually, in my silliness, I listened to one of his sermons going, okay, let me just see what he's got there. And I listened to him preach. I go, it was good, but, you know, it wasn't, you know, I could probably do a little better than that. Not that you would ever think that. You know, you're too pious. But I actually, that went through my mind real quick, though. I mean, I told that thought to go away, right? I was jealous that somebody else was being blessed in their ministry. And I just happened to be reading this passage. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then I saw John's answer. What a great answer. If you ever are discontent with, with what God's, why do I have this spouse? Why do I have this job? Why do I have this ministry? Why does my Bible study only have two people and they got 200? Write this verse down. Verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Why can't I play the piano like Benjamin? I'm going to try harder. No. It's all a work of grace. It's a gift of God. Why can't I preach like Tom? Why? Because maybe God hasn't called you to do that. Why does my study have so few people? Because God orchestrates how many people are going to be under your influence. Isn't that liberating? That should bring us joy. We should go, God, forgive me for being desirous of vainglory. This is interesting among churches and preachers. Not that it matters, but how many people go to your church? Well, if we really meant not that it matters, then why are you asking? Not that it matters, but how many people are in your... Who cares? A man can receive nothing. So if God wants this church to shrink down to a tiny church, as long as we're obeying God, following his word, trying to be obedient to the word... It's God's business. If the walls fall out and we, we keep going that way and this way, it's nothing we're doing. It's God. And he gets all the glory. But then John says, you know, I've learned something, and that is life is about elevating Jesus, not competing with Jesus, not sharing the glory with Jesus, but elevating him. John says, hey, guys, don't you remember verse 28? You bear me witness. I said I'm not the Christ. I was sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend stands and hears him. This joy of mine is full. He must increase. What a great verse. He must increase. I must decrease. Think of yourself as a magnifying glass. Every time you can, 
Get in front of Jesus between the person and let him see Jesus magnified in your life. Talk about him. Give him the glory. Live like him. Depend on him. This is how Paul said the same thing in Philippians 1. He goes, I might die here in prison, but the one thing I pray for is this. He said, my earnest expectation and hope is this, that I will not be put to shame. I won't make Jesus look bad in anything, but Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So we learn to elevate Christ, to ask God to work in our hearts. Well, we're out of time here. I want to give you just a couple things to think about. If you're born again and you know you're born again, you're like, yeah, I know I'm born again. Real quick, number one, I want to encourage you to celebrate that. You're like, why? Well, why do you celebrate your first birthday? Well, it's just something we do. Well, that one's going to end because you're going to die. First Peter 1 says this. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again. You're like, but Pastor Tom, I don't know when my spiritual birthday was. Was it March 7th? Was it 1989? You don't need to know when it was. You just need to know that it was. If you're born again, don't worry about when it was. Just say, praise you, God. Thank you so much that I'm born again. I will bless you forever in this life and the life to come that you have mercy on me. And changed my heart and forgave me and made me alive. So celebrate it. Sing about it. Don't go, I already did that, right? How would you feel on your birthday if everybody goes, well, we already sang that last year. (laughs) Celebrate it. (laughs) Secondly, communicate it. If Jesus said, you're not going to heaven if you're not born again, how much do we have to hate people to never ask permission to share that with them? Right? Communicate it to your children. Communicate it. Just ask people, hey, can I... Could we read through John 3 together? Third, elevate Jesus in the little things that we do. Lord, be seen in me, more like you. Transform me into your image so that my family sees Christ in me. And then finally, cooperate. Cooperate. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the same Holy Spirit that caused you and me to be born again, as cute as babies are, they were never designed to stay that way. Babies are born to grow, to mature, and so are Christians. We're not born to be immature, selfish, little Christian babies. We're born to grow, to be changed into the image of Christ. And part of that involves cooperating with the Holy Spirit, listening to the Word, praying, being sensitive to God's leading, learning to walk by the Spirit so I don't carry out the desires of the flesh. Seeking to allow the same Lord that began a good work in me to work in me for his good pleasure, to discharge my gifts, to serve Christ. So if you're born again, celebrate it, communicate it, cooperate with Christ, and elevate Jesus. But if you're not born again, can you imagine the shrieks in eternity? of people who go, yeah, I had my chance and I let it sail by. So I want to invite you this morning to give your life to Christ. And if you're not sure, you want to talk to somebody, we're here to help you talk to somebody who came with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that Christ came into the world to save us. Oh, Lord, we bless you for that. We thank you for our forgiveness. We thank you for salvation We thank you that it's all by grace, all for your glory. All that's being done in us is being done by God.
Forgive us when we don't cooperate, but thank you that that's not the condition for our salvation. Help us to go out this week and grow and love and serve and elevate Jesus. And if you're not sure if you're a Christian right now, just say, Lord, I want to be saved. I want you to change my heart. I believe that you died and rose again. And I surrender my will by faith and ask you to make me a new creation. Wash my sins and make me new today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.